Chapter 12 The Healing of One Born Blind Since the world began, it has not been heard of that anyone opened the eyes of one that was born blind. John 9, 32 It was quite true that there was no instance recorded in Scripture or in secular history at the time when this man spoke of any person who was born blind having obtained his sight. I believe it was in the year 1728 that the celebrated Dr. Cheseldon of St. Thomas's Hospital, for the first time in the world's history, achieved the marvel of giving sight to a man who had been blind from his youth up. Since then, some successful operations have been performed on persons who were born blind. However, this man was quite correct in the statement that then, and in his day, neither by skillful surgery or even by miracle, had birth blindness been healed. No doubt this man was a great student in the matter of blindness. It touched so close to home because he dwelt beneath its perpetual shadow. He was the one man in the city who understood the subject thoroughly, but in all his research he found no ground for hope. Having learned the whole history of blindness and its cure, this man had come to the assured conviction that none ever had been healed who shared his condition. Certainly a mournful conclusion for him. Our Lord Jesus did for him what had never been done before for any man. This pleasing fact seems to be full of consolation to any people here who labor under the idea that theirs is a most peculiar and hopeless case. It probably is not so unique and special a case as you think. But even if it is, there's no room for despair, since Jesus delights to open up new paths of grace. Our Lord is inventive in love. He creates new modes of mercy. It is His joy to find out and relieve those whose miserable condition has baffled all other help. His mercy is not bound by precedence. He preserves a freshness and originality of love. If you can't find an instance in which a person like yourself has ever been saved, you should not conclude that you must inevitably be lost. Rather, you should believe in Him who does great wonders and marvels unsearchable in the way of grace. He does as He wills, and His will is love. Have hope that, inasmuch as He sees in you a unique sinner, He will make you into a unique trophy of His power to pardon and to bless. That's how it was with this man's eyes. If eyes that had been born blind were never opened before, Jesus Christ would do it and greater would be the glory brought to His name by the miracle. Jesus does not need to be shown the way. He loves to cut paths for Himself. The greater the room for His mercy, the better He likes the road. Let's gather instruction from the particular expression which the healed man used here. May the Holy Spirit make the meditation truly profitable to us. The Peculiarity of His Case it was not an instance of a desire for light that could have speedily and easily been remedied. There was plenty of light all around him, but the poor creature had no eyes. Now, there are millions of people in the world who have little or no light. Darkness covers the earth, and gross darkness covers the people. It is the church's business to spread light on all sides. For this work she is well qualified. We should not permit any person to perish due to a lack of knowing the gospel. We cannot give men eyes, but we can give them light. 
God has placed His golden candlesticks among us, and expressly said, Ye are the light of the world. Matthew 5.14 Now I believe that there are some people who have eyes, but only see a little, because they need light. They are children of God, but they walk in darkness, and see no light. God has given to them the spiritual ability of sight, but they are still down in the mines, in the region of night and death shade. They are imprisoned in Doubting Castle, where only a few feeble rays struggle into their dungeon. They walk like men in a mist, seeing yet not seeing. They hear doctrines preached which are not the pure truth, just the scattered corn of the covenant. And while their eyes are blinded with chaff and dust, they themselves are bewildered and lost in amaze. Too many in this murky light weave theories of doubt and fear for themselves, which increase the gloom. Their tears defile the windows of their soul. They are like men who hang up blinds and shutters to keep out the sun. They cannot see even though grace has given them eyes. May we, by explanation and example, by teaching with our words and the louder language of our lives, scatter light on all sides, so that those who dwell in spiritual midnight may rejoice, because for them light has sprung up. This was not the case of a man blinded by accident. If that were the case, the help of man might have been of some service. People who have been struck with blindness have recovered. Notable is the instance in Bible history when Elisha struck a whole army with blindness, but afterwards he prayed to God for them, and they received their sight at once. Scripture And when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord, and said, Smite these people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. And he led them to Samaria. And when they came into Samaria, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. 2 Kings 6, 18-20 There is more that we can do in cases where the blindness is traceable to circumstances rather than to nature. For instance, everywhere in the world there is a degree of blindness caused by prejudice. Men judge the truth before they hear it. They form opinions about the gospel without having studied the gospel itself. Put the New Testament into their hands, beg them to be honest and to investigate it with their best discernment, and to seek guidance from the Holy Spirit, and I believe many would see their error and correct their thinking. There are some true spirits whose thoughts are blinded by prejudice, who would be helped to see the truth if we would tenderly and wisely place it before them. The prejudices of education sway many in this country. We are to the very core a conservative people, unyielding to established error, and suspicious of any long-neglected truth. Our countrymen are not quick to receive the most obvious truth unless it has been in vogue for ages. Perhaps it is better that we are like this than whirled about with every wind of doctrine and running after every new idea as some other nations do. But because of this, the gospel has to combat a mass of prejudice in this country. It's not uncommon to hear, Such were my fathers, such ought I to be. Or again, 
such our family has always been, therefore such will I be, and such shall my children be. No matter how obvious the truth may be that is presented to some men's minds, they will not even give it a hearing, because old men, good men, and men in authority have decided otherwise. Such people assume that they are right by inheritance and approved by ancestry. They cannot learn anything. They have reached the fullness of wisdom, and that's where they plan to stop. The Church of God should try to remove all prejudices from human eyes from whatever sources they may come. We may be able to cure such blindness, and it is within our responsibility to attempt it. Like Ananias, we may remove the scales from the eyes of some blinded Paul. When God has given eyes, we may have the opportunity to wash the dust out of them. Mingle with your fellow men, tell them what the faith is that has saved you, and let them see the good works which the grace of God produces in you. And as the gospel first removed from men's eyes the scales of Judaism, Greek philosophy, and Roman pride, there is no doubt that in this land and in this age it will make short work of the prejudices which some are doing their best to nurture. But this was not the case of a man who was blind by accident, so it wasn't a type of understanding darkened by prejudice. The man was blind from his birth, so his was the blindness of nature. Therefore it baffled all surgical skill. Concerning the blindness caused by human depravity, the blindness that comes with us at our birth, and continues with us until the grace of God comes and causes us to be born again, I'll say that since the beginning of the world it has not been heard that any man has opened the eyes of one whose spiritual blindness was born with him and is a part of his nature. If it is something external that blinds me, I may recover. But if it is something from within which shuts out the light, who is he that can restore my vision? If from the beginning of my existence I am full of foolishness, if it's a part of my nature to be without understanding, how dense is my darkness! How hopeless is the dream that it can ever be removed except by a divine hand! Let us think and say what we will, but every one of us is by nature born blind to spiritual things. We are not capable of understanding God, not capable of understanding the gospel of His dear Son, and not capable of understanding the way of salvation by faith in such a practical way as to be saved by it. We have eyes, but we cannot see. We have understandings, but those understandings are perverted. They are like a compass which forgets the pole. We judge, but we judge unrighteously. By our nature we exchange bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We replace darkness for light and light for darkness. This is inbred in our nature, worked into the very fabric of our being. You cannot get it out of man because it is a part of the man. It is his nature. If you ask me why man's understanding is so dark, I reply, because his whole nature is disordered by sin. His other abilities, having been perverted, act upon his understanding and prevent its acting in a proper manner. There is a coalition of evil within, which deceives the judgment and leads it into captivity to evil affections. For instance, our carnal heart loves sin. The course of our unrenewed soul is towards evil. We were conceived in sin and shaped in iniquity, 
and we as naturally go after evil as a swine seeks out filth. Sin has a fascination for us, and we are captured by it like birds with a lure or fish with bait. Even those of us who have been renewed have to guard against sin, because our nature is so inclined to it. With much diligence and great labor we climb the ways of virtue, but the paths of sin come easy to the feet. Isn't that because our fallen nature leans in that direction? You only have to relax your efforts and to release your soul from its anchor hold, and it drifts immediately downward towards iniquity, because that's the direction the current of nature runs. It requires much power to send us upward, but downward we go as easily as a stone falls to the ground. You know it's true. Man is not as God made him. His affections are corrupt. Since it is clear that the affections often sway judgment, the balances are held unfairly, because the heart bribes the head. Even when we imagine that we are very honest, we have unconscious leanings. Our affections, like Eve, seduce the Adam of our understanding, and the forbidden fruit is judged to be good for food. The smoke of the love of sin blinds our mental eye. Our desire is often farther to our conclusion. We think we are judging fairly, but we are really indulging our depraved nature. We think a certain thing to be better because we like it better. We won't condemn a fault too severely because we have a leaning that way. Neither will we commend an excellence because it might cost our flesh too much to do what is required to reach it, or not reaching it might strike too severe a blow upon our ego. As long as our natural love of sin covers the mind's eye with cataracts and even destroys its optic nerve, we should not be surprised that the blindness is beyond removal by any human surgery. In addition to all this, our natural pride and self-reliance rebel against the gospel. Every one of us sees ourselves as very important individuals. Even if we sweep a street crossing, we have a dignity of self which must not be insulted. A beggar's rags may cover just as much pride as an alderman's gown. Self-importance is not restricted to any one position or grade of life. In the pride of our nature we are all accounted by ourselves to be both great and good, and anything which would in any way lower us we reject as unreasonable and absurd. We can't see it, and are angry that others do. He who makes us suspect our own nothingness teaches a doctrine hard to be understood. Pride will not and cannot understand the doctrines of the cross because they ring her death knell. A consequence of our natural self-sufficiency is that we all desire to enter heaven by our own efforts. We may deny human merit as a doctrine, but flesh and blood everywhere lust after it. We want to save ourselves by feelings, if we cannot by doings, and we cling to this as for dear life. When the gospel comes with its sharp axe and says, Down with this tree, your grapes are gall, your apples are poison, your very prayers need to be repented of, your tears need to be wept over, your holiest thoughts are unholy, you must be born again, and you must be saved through the merits of another, by the free, undeserved favor of God. Then immediately all our manliness, dignity, and excellence stand up in indignation, and we resolve never to accept salvation on such terms.
that refusal assumes the shape of a lack of power to understand the gospel. We do not and cannot understand the gospel because our opinions of ourselves stand in the way. We start with wrong ideas of self, so the whole business becomes confusion, and we ourselves are blinded. Another reason why our understanding does not and cannot see spiritual things is because we judge spiritual things by our senses. Imagine a person who makes a foot rule as his standard of everything which exists in nature, and assume that this man with his foot rule in his pocket becomes an astronomer. He looks through the telescope and observes the fixed stars. When he takes out his foot rule, he is told that it is quite out of place in connection with the heavens. He must give up his feet and inches and calculate by millions of miles. He is indignant. He won't be fooled by such enthusiasm. He is a man of common sense, and a foot rule is a thing which he can see and handle. Millions of miles are mere matters of faith. No one has ever traveled them, and he does not believe in them. The man effectually closes his own eyes, and his understanding cannot develop within such limits. In the same way, we measure God's corn with our own bushel. We cannot be brought to believe that, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts more than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 9. If we find it hard to forgive, we imagine that it's the same with God. Every spiritual truth is acted upon in the same way. We intend to measure the ocean of divine love with measuring cups, and we estimate the sublime truths of revelation by drops in the bucket. We will never be able to reach the thoughts and things of God as long as we continue judging after the sight of the eyes according to the measure of an earth-bound, carnal mind. Our understanding has also become empty and out of gear from the fact that we are at a distance from God and because of this we don't believe in Him. If we live near to God and habitually recognize that in Him we live and move and have our being, then we would accept everything He spoke as being true, because He spoke it. Acts 17, 28. Then our understanding would be clarified immediately by its contact with truth and God. But now we think of God as a distant person. We have no love for Him by nature, nor any care about Him. It would be the best news some sinners could hear if there was an announcement that God was dead. They would rejoice at the thought that there was no God. The fool always says there is no God in his heart, even when he doesn't dare say it with his tongue. In our nature, we would be glad to be rid of God. It's only when the Spirit of God comes and brings us near to God and gives us faith in our Heavenly Father that we rejoice in Him and are able to understand His will. So, you see, our entire nature, fallen as it is, operates to blind our eyes. Therefore, the opening of the eye of the human understanding towards divine things remains an impossibility to any power short of the divine. I believe there are some brethren whose belief is that you can open a sinner's blind eyes by convincing them with words. You might as well hope to sing a stone into sensibility. They imagine that you must enchant men with splendid discourse, and then the scales will fall from their eyes. 
The climax is a marvellous motivator, and the conclusion is more wonderful still. If these won't convince men, what will? To finish a discourse with a blaze of fireworks, won't that enlighten? Sadly, we know that sinners have been dazzled a thousand times by all the pyrotechnics of oratory, and have remained as spiritually blind as they ever were. A belief has been held by some that you must argue the truth into men's minds. They believe that if you can present the doctrines of the gospel to them in a clear, logical, demonstrative form, they must give way. But truly, no man's eyes are opened by logic. Reason alone gives no man power to see the light of heaven. The clearest statements and the most simple presentations are equally in vain without grace. I bear witness that I have tried to make the truth as plain as day, but my hearers have not seen it for that. The best declaration of truth will not of itself remove birth blindness and enable men to look unto Jesus. Nor do I believe that even the most enthusiastic gospel appeal nor the most passionate testimonies to its truth will convince men's understanding. All these things have their place and their use, but they have no power in and of themselves to enlighten the understanding in a way that saves. I bring my blind friend to an elevated spot, and I ask him to look at the distant landscape. See how the silver river threads its way amid the emerald fields. See how yonder trees make up a shadowy wood. How wisely yonder garden near at hand is cultivated to perfection. And how nobly yonder lordly castle rises on yon knoll of matchless beauty. He shakes his head because he has no admiration for the scene. I borrow poetical expressions, but he still doesn't join in my delight. I try plain words and tell him, There is the garden, and there is the castle, and there is the wood, and there is the river. Don't you see them? No, he says. He can't see a single one of them and doesn't know what they are like. What ails the man? Haven't I described the landscape well? Have I been inaccurate in my explanations? Haven't I given him my own testimony that I have walked those glades and sailed along that stream? He shakes his head, and my words are lost. His eyes of his heart alone are to blame. Let's come to this conviction about sinners, because if we don't, we will hammer away and do nothing. Let us be assured that there is something the matter with the sinner himself which we cannot cure. Let's do what we can with him, but we can't get him saved unless he is cured. Let's embrace this, because it will drive us away from ourselves and lead us to our God. It will drive us to the strong for strength and teach us to seek power beyond our own. It is then that God will bless men, because then we will be sure to give all the glory to His name. The Specialties of the Cure Secondly, we will dwell a little on the specialties of the cure, not exactly of this man's cure, but of the cure of many whom we have seen. First, it is usually accomplished by the most simple means. This man's eyes were opened with a little clay put into them, and then washed out at the pool of Siloam. God blesses very small things to the conversion of souls. It is very humbling to a preacher who thinks, Well, I preached a pretty good sermon that time, to find out that God doesn't care one bit about him or his sermon, 
and that a stray remark he made in the street, which he hardly thought was of any value whatsoever, was what God blessed. When he thought he had done his best, he had done nothing. And when he thought he had done nothing, God blessed him. Many souls have had their eyes opened by an instrument which never dreamed of being so useful. Indeed, the whole way of salvation is in itself extremely simple, so it's a good comparison to the clay and spittle which the Saviour used. I don't find many souls converted by bodies of divinity. We have received many into the church, but we have never received one who became converted by a profound theological discussion. We very seldom hear of any great number of conversions under very eloquent preachers, very seldom indeed. We appreciate eloquence, and don't have a word to say against it by itself, but evidently it has no power spiritually to enlighten the understanding, and neither does it please God to use the excellency of words for conversion. When Paul laid aside human wisdom and said he wouldn't use the excellency of speech, he only laid aside what would not have been of much use to him. When David put off Saul's armor and took the sling and the stone, he slew the giant. And giants are not to be conquered today any more than they were then by champions dressed in Saul's armor. We must keep to the simple thing, to the plain gospel plainly preached. The clay and the spittle was not an artistic combination, inclination was not charmed by them, or culture gratified, yet by these and a wash in Siloam eyes were opened. In this way, it pleases God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Secondly, in every case it is a divine work. In this case, it was clearly the Lord Jesus who opened the man's eyes literally, and it is always his work by the Holy Spirit spiritually. He gives a man the ability to know spiritual things and embrace them by faith. No eye is ever opened to see Jesus except by Jesus. The Spirit of God works all good things in us. Don't let us lose sight of this belief for any reason. The complicated nature of some men's doctrinal systems requires them to attribute some measure of power to the sinner, but we know that he is dead in sin and entirely without strength. Beloved, change your belief structure and don't reject the truth before us now because it stands confirmed by our own daily experience and is revealed in the Word of God. It is the Spirit that brings life and enlightens. A blind soul only yields to that voice which of old said, Let there be light. Next, this opening of the eyes is often instantaneous, and when the eye is opened, it often sees just as perfectly as if it had always been seen. A few hours ago, I saw what I believe was the opening of the eyes of one seeking soul. Two sisters came and inquired of me in the sanctuary. They had been hearing the gospel here for only a short time, but had been impressed by it. They expressed their regret that they were about to move far away, but they expressed their gratitude that they had been here at all. I was encouraged by their kind thanks, but felt anxious that a more conclusive work should be worked in them. So I asked them, Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you saved? One of them replied, I have been trying hard to believe. No, I said, that won't do. Did you ever tell your father that you tried to believe him? They admitted that such a response would have been an insult, 
Then I presented the gospel very plainly to them in as simple language as I could. One of them said, I can't believe it. I can't believe that I'm saved. Then I went on to say, God bears testimony to his son that whoever trusts in his son is saved. Will you make him a liar, or will you believe his word? While I spoke, one of them startled us all as she cried, Oh, sir, I see it all. I am saved. Bless Jesus for showing me this and saving me. I see it all. The sister who had brought me these young friends knelt down with them while we praised and magnified the Lord with all our hearts. One of the two sisters, however, could not see the gospel as the other one had, but I feel sure she will. Doesn't it seem strange that even though both heard the same words, only one came out into clear light while the other waits in the gloom? The change which comes over the heart when a person's understanding grasps the gospel is often reflected in the face and shines like the light of heaven. Newly enlightened souls often exclaim, Why, sir, it's so plain! How is it I have not seen it before now? I understand all I have read in the Bible now, even though I didn't care about it before. It has all come in a minute, and now I see what I never saw before. I only share this one instance, but it's one among thousands which I've seen, in which the eyes have opened instantly. I can only compare the enlightened sinner to a person who has been shut up in a dark prison and has never seen the light. Then, suddenly, his liberator opens a window, and the prisoner is staggered and amazed at what he sees when he looks across the hills and plains. To the believer, heaven-given sight is so magnificent a gift, and what is revealed to him so amazes him that he barely knows where he is. Often, when Christ opens the eyes, it's done in a moment, and accomplished completely in that moment. However, in other instances, it's a more gradual light. First men are seen as trees walking, then by degrees, film after film is removed from the spiritual eye. Now, you shouldn't be amazed if light appears so suddenly that it comes as a new sensation to the man and surprises him. Do you remember the first breath of spiritual life you ever drew? I still remember mine. For some of us, the first time we saw the sea and the first time we gazed upon the Alps is fixed in our memories, but these were nothing. They were still just pieces of this old world. We had only seen a little more of what we had seen before. But conversion opens up a whole new world. It teaches us to gaze into the invisible and see the things not seen by mortal eyes. When we receive new eyes, we see a thousand things which utterly astound and at the same time delight us. Are you surprised when young converts get excited? I'm not surprised. I wish we had a little more excitement in our gatherings for worship. Who hears the cry nowadays, What must I do to be saved? Or who hears a soul saying, I found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote? Let's give plenty of freedom to the work of the Spirit of God and believe that when He comes, men will not always act under the sober rules of proper etiquette, but will break through them and even be suspected of being drunk because they speak like men not in their ordinary minds. It's a strange and marvelous thing to men when the Spirit of God opens their eyes, and we must not be surprised if they barely know what they say and forget where they are. One thing is certain. When the eyes are opened, it's a very clear thing to the man himself. Others may doubt whether his eyes are opened, 
but he knows they are. One thing I know, that having been blind, now I see. When the Lord, in His infinite mercy, visits a spirit that has been shut up in the dark for a long time, the change becomes so great that He doesn't need to ask if He's been changed or not, because He Himself is assured of it by His own consciousness. When the man is given eyes to see, he possesses a faculty that is capable of abundant use. The man who could see the Pharisees could see Jesus for eternity. He who has his eyes opened can not only see the trees and fields around him, but he can also see the heavens and the glorious sun. Once a man is given spiritual light, he also immediately has the capacity to see divine mysteries. He will see the world to come, and the glories yet to be revealed. Those newly created eyes are those which will see the King in His beauty, and the land that is very far off. He has the ability to see everything that will be seen in the day of the revelation of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Oh, what a marvellous work is this! May every one of us know it personally. So, do we know it? Have we had our eyes opened? The Condition of the Healed Man When this man's eyes were first opened, he had strong impressions in favour of the glorious one who had healed him. He didn't know who he was, but he knew he must be something very good. He thought he must be a prophet. When he came to know him better, he felt that he was God, and fell down and worshipped him. No man has had his eyes opened without feeling intense love for Jesus, without believing in his deity, and without worshipping him as the Son of God. We don't want to be unloving, but we have a little common sense left. We can never see how a man can be a Christian who doesn't believe in Christ, or how a man can be said to believe in Christ who only believes in the smallest part of him, for example, if he only receives his humanity but rejects his Godhead. There must be a real faith in the Son of God. He is still blind and dark who does not fall down like the man in this story and worship the living God beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and blessing God that He has found both a Prince and a Saviour in the person of the Lord Jesus, who has laid down His life for His people. Oh, I am sure, if your eyes are opened, you love Jesus this morning. You feel your heart leap at the very thought of Him. Your whole soul goes after Him, and you feel as if He has opened your eyes, those eyes belonging to Him, and your whole self, too. Therefore this man became a confessor of Christ from that moment. They questioned him, and he did not speak bashfully and conceal his convictions, but he answered the questions at once. Stephen was the first martyr, but this man was clearly the first confessor, and he laid it out clearly before the Pharisees, straight to their faces and in simple language. So, beloved, if the Lord has opened our eyes, we will not hesitate to say so. He has done it, blessed be His name. Our tongue might as well be stricken with eternal silence if we hesitate to declare what Jesus has done for us. I urge you, who have received grace from Christ Jesus, to become confessors of the faith, to acknowledge Christ as you ought to do. Be baptized and united with His people. Then, in whatever company you are, however others may speak for Him or against Him, take your stand and say, he has opened my eyes, and I praise his name. Then this man becomes an advocate for Christ, as well as a confessor, 
and an able advocate, too, because the facts which were his arguments saved his adversaries. They said this and that, but he replied, Whether that's true or not is not for me to say, but God has heard this man. Therefore, this man is not a sinner as you say he is. He has opened my eyes, so I know where he must have come from. He must have come from God. We have been arguing for a long time against faithlessness with arguments which have never achieved anything. I believe skeptics just pick up their blunted shafts and shoot them at the field of truth again and again. I also fear that the Christian pulpit has been a great instructor in faithlessness because we've taught our people arguments which they never would have known if we had not repeated them under the intention of replying to them. But, beloved, you will never defeat a lack of faith except with facts. Share what God has done for you, and prove it by your godly lives. Against the holy lives of Christians, unbelief has no power. Each man must stand ready with his sword of holy living, secure in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the attacks of your enemies, however intense their hostility, will utterly fail. God grant us, like this man, to learn the art of arguing for Christ by personal testimony. So it came to pass that this man, with his eyes opened, was driven out of the synagogue. Speckled birds are always chased away by their fellow birds. One of the worst things that can happen to a man as far as this world is concerned is to know too much. If you barely keep up with the times, you may be tolerated. But if you get a little ahead of the age, you should expect to be treated badly. Be blind among blind men. It's the very demand of worldly wisdom if you want to save your skin. It's a very unsafe thing to have your eyes opened among blind men, because they won't believe what you say. You will be very passionate, and, since they cannot see, you have no common ground for argument, and you will immediately fall to quarreling. So, if the blind men are in the majority, it's probable that you'll have to escape out a door or window and meet people elsewhere. When God opens a man's eyes to see spiritual things, immediately others say, What's this fellow talking about? We don't see what he says he sees. If the fellow is very simple, he turns around to these blind men and says, I will explain it to you now. Dear friend, it's a waste of your time, because they cannot see. If a man is born blind, you don't need to talk to him about scarlet, mauve, and magenta. He can't understand you, because he doesn't know anything at all about it. Move on, because it's no use reasoning with him. The only thing you can do with him is to take him where he can get his eyes opened. To argue with him is utterly useless, because he doesn't have the ability to see. If you knew a person to be devoid of taste, you would not quarrel with him if he said sugar tasted like salt. He doesn't know what sweet means, nor what salt means but only uses the words without understanding them. In the same way, a man who is without grace in his heart does not and cannot know anything about religion. He picks up the phrases, but he knows as much about the truth itself as a botanist knows about botany who has never seen a flower, or as a deaf man knows about music. Don't try to reason with such people. Just believe that they are incapable of learning from you by reasoning and go to God's Holy Spirit with this cry, Lord, open their eyes, 
Lord, open their eyes. Be very patient with them, because you can't expect blind men to see, and you must not be very angry with them if they don't. Be very prayerful for them, and bring the gospel to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then, who knows, their eyes may be opened. But don't be surprised if they say you are a fanatic, an enthusiast, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, or a hypocrite. Those are the kinds of words which the spiritually blind fling at those who can see. You say you have an ability which they don't. Therefore, they deny the ability, because they wouldn't like to admit that you have something they don't, and they put you out of the synagogue. But notice, when this man was put out, Jesus Christ found him. So it was a blessed loss for him to lose the Pharisees and find his Saviour. Brethren, what a mercy it is when the world casts us out! I remember a lady of title, who is now in heaven, who, when she was united to this church, was forsaken by all the people of position who had formerly associated with her. I said to her, and she joined in the sentiment, What a mercy you are rid of them! They might have been a snare to you. Now you will have no further trouble from them. Yes, and she added, For Christ's sake, I could be content to be counted as the offscouring of all things. The society of the world never was any benefit to us, and it never will be. Trying to be very respectable and mingle in elevated society is a snare to many Christians. Value men for their real worth, and not for their sparkle, and believe the greatest men are those who are holiest, and those who keep company with Christ to be the best company. It is a great blessing to the church when it is persecuted. For that matter, we might be glad to have back the days of Diocletian again. The church is never purer, never more devout, and never increases more rapidly than when she enjoys the bad opinion of society. When we begin to be considered excellent people, and our church is honored and respected, corruption sets in. We get away from Christ and prove again that the friendship of this world is hatred toward God. Scripture Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore that desires to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. James 4 4. I pray that the Lord grant that we may have our eyes so opened that our testimony may bring upon us the charge of being strange. Then, if we remove ourselves from the company of those who cannot see the Lord, may we live even closer to Him, and this shall be a great gain to us. The Lord bless you, beloved, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.